Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. morning I like to do a prayer I don't do often but it struck my heart it was from the valley of the visions a prayer called the mediator to the everlasting creator father we have destroyed ourselves and our nature is defiled the powers of our souls are degraded and we are vile miserable strengthless but our hope is in thee ever we are to be saved, it will be by your goodness, undeserved and astonishings, not by mercy alone, but by abundant mercies, and not just by grace, but exceeding riches of grace. As such, you have revealed and promised, you have exemplified in thoughts of peace and not of evil towards us. You have devised means to rescue us from sins, perdition, and destruction to restore us to happiness and honor and safety. And we bless you for the everlasting covenant, for the appointment of a mediator to stand in our place. We rejoice, for he has not failed, nor was he discouraged, but he accomplished the work which you gave him to do. And he said on the cross, it is finished. And we exult in the thought that your justice is satisfied, your truth is established, and your law is magnified. And with it, a foundation is laid for our hope. We look forward to a present and personal interest in Christ. And we say, surely He has borne our griefs and He's carried our sorrows. He has won our peace and healed our soul. Justified by His blood, made right with God, we are saved by His life and through His sufferings. Glorying in His cross, we bow to his rule. Having his spirit, we possess his mind as a gift from you to us. And Lord, we pray that you would grant our works of service, that it may not be occasional and partial, but universal, influential, and effective. And may we always continue in your words as well as your works so that we may reach our end in peace. We pray this in the name of your Son, who's made salvation not only possible, but has made it effective. We pray. God's people said, Amen. He's a good God, is he not? Once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away, there lived a great king. He was simultaneously the most powerful man in the kingdom as well as the kindest and gentlest man in the whole realm. The kingdom was known for its peace and harmony and goodwill. Neighbors cherished one another and years would pass without a single crime ever being committed. One day, however, the chief priest of the merciful king came into the throne room with ill tidings. There's a thief in the realm of your kingdom, he proclaimed. The king was astonished. Find that thief, he responded, and when you do bring him to me, He will be punished with ten lashes. Those in the room were astonished. Well, it has been so long time since a crime had been committed. 
And they could hardly imagine one who would do such thing. A wink went by, and the servant again made his way into the throne room, saying, I have bad news for you. Once again, the thief has struck. In anger, the king raised his voice and said, Find that thief. When you do, he will receive 25 lashes. The people began to murmur among themselves, Who could withstand such a punishment? Who could possibly be committing such a crime knowing its consequences? As time went on, the servant once again came back into the throne room with the same news, Your Majesty, once again the thief has struck, robbing that which was not his, taking what was not his. The king was enraged at this point. For three weeks this has been going on. They have not found the culprit, nor has he come forward. Again, he says, find that wretched thief. And when you do, his punishment will now be doubled to 50 lashes. Now the people were filled with dread as they looked at one another wondering, is it him? Is it her? Who can be doing such a thing? And if caught, who could withstand such punishment? Some ready for that person, that culprit to be found, only so that it may end. Others hoping never be found for who could withstand and survive the punishment. Soon afterwards, the servant again approached the king in his throne room. His face was pale, and his voice was timid and hollow as he presented himself before the king. Your highness, he spoke, the thief has been found. Bring him to me this instant, cried the king. The crowd that had poured into the throne room slowly parted, revealing the thief who now stood trembling in the middle of the room, the one who had been robbing them, the one who had been stealing, the one who had broken peace, the one who was deserving of such horrendous punishment to the utter shock and dismay of all. As the thief was brought into the room, they recognized it was the king's own aged mother. There she stood trembling and crying. Her small and frail body was shaking with fear and shame. She was perhaps the very last soul that anyone had ever thought or suspected of such a crime. And there she stood or with the king himself in shock and deeply wounded by the actions of his mother. The crowd began to wonder and murmur among themselves, what will the king do? Will the merciful king do? Would he, would he set aside the law and display his love and mercy by forgiving his mother for her crimes because of their relationship? Or will he display his sovereignty and justice by giving her exactly what he deserved? Will he choose mercy or will he choose justice? The choice is the king and king alone. The king raised his hand to quiet the crowd. Bring the whipping post, he cried. The crowd was dumbfounded. Would the king truly have his mother receive such punishment? Fifty lashes with the whip? Even the king could scarcely survive such a flogging, and he was strong and young. This frail woman would not even last a few strokes. The old woman was tied to the post. Her garment was rent, torn apart, exposing her back to the whipmaster. 
Her ribs could be counted for her frailty. Administer the lashes, proclaimed the king. And not a sound could be heard as the whip was raised. But just as the whipmaster was about to unleash his first stroke, the king cried, Halt! Stop! The crowd together sighed in utter relief, but the feeling did not last for long, for the king stood from his throne. He slowly removed the crown from his head, laying it upon the regal seat. As he began to walk down the stairs towards his mother, he laid aside his royal robe and finely woven tunic. Coming to his mother, he wrapped his enormous body around her, completely enveloping her in his frame. And the king spoke, Now, administer the lashes. Thus, in one act, did the king display pure mercy and perfect justice. Obviously, this is not a true story. Yet it displays a true predicament. The relationship between God and man. God, the holy and righteous king who deserves all worship and honor, instead is rejected by his own creation, man. That rebellion plunges all of humanity into sin, bringing with it the curse of death. God demands justice, but he also loves his creation. What does he do? Well, here in the Gospel of Mark, we read that God himself sends his son, Jesus, to take our place, like the king who envelops himself around his mother and receives. God does the same. You see, Jesus suffers in our place. He's mocked in our place. He's crucified in our place, satisfying both the justice of God and demonstrating his love. This is all as we have seen over these last few weeks is the will of God. Again, remind us that scripture tells us the Messiah would be despised and rejected by man. That he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And it was upon him, the prophet says, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God showing his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So though the story with the king and his mother may not be true, we see that it happens in a more cosmic realm here as we look at Mark's gospel. For Mark has recorded the suffering of Christ as he suffered humiliation by the hands of man through the will of the Father. Today's Jesus' suffering finally and mercifully comes to an end. But it comes to an end in triumph. Comes to an end in triumph. Mark 15, verses 33 through 39, I've titled this Triumph Through Death. We've talked about Christ's sufferings and Mark, and we've seen in this passion of Christ, it's marked by suffering and triumph. At this point, we've been seeing the humiliation, the sufferings of Christ. Now, as we see the suffering turns to triumph, even on the cross. Read with me, 33 through 39. I'll read out loud if you'll just read silent with me. Where Mark writes, And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sebekathini, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus, in verse 37, uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And Father, we believe he is. We believe Mark's record is true. We believe it is accurate. It is the evidence of the Son of God who came into the likeness of flesh, the likeness of man, and took the wrath of God, demonstrating your love for us all. Open our minds and hearts to this familiar passage of Scripture. Let me speak words that are edifying, that build up. Let us know the difference between your word and my mere opinion. But above all, we invite your Holy Spirit to join with us this morning, speak to our hearts. And Father, we pray through the Holy Spirit that we will not walk out these front doors the same as we walked in this morning. Let us respond to your important work in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Last week we saw that four sets of people mocked Jesus while he was on the cross. The Roman guards the pilgrims coming for the Passover, walking by, the religious leaders, and lastly, as we saw, the thieves. In today's passage, Mark records that Jesus endures now the worst of the worst, the wrath of God, by bearing the curse of our sin through his suffering and death on that cross, giving more evidence, showing that he truly was the Son of God. Mark 1, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. Mark takes a bookmark here, or bookends. We see that's manifested his identity by supernatural events and the testimony of witnesses, even in this short passage. The first supernatural event in the death of Jesus, as we were to go back and look at verse 33, comes with that of the darkness that covers the land of Palestine from about noon till about 3 p.m. The darkness was a supernatural event. It's not a solar eclipse during that time of the full moon, but it lasted over three hours. It could have been some type of natural phenomenon that they might have seen, maybe a dust storm, something of that nature, but he seems to say something supernatural was happening. Then a time when the sun is at its highest and the most, uh, most powerful place, it is dark. Darkness in scriptures is a sign of judgment. For those Jews reading it, they would immediately go back to the Old Testament and the imagery of how darkness reflects that. Interestingly, Josephus, one of the historic Jewish historians, writes that the ninth hour, 3 p.m., was the time when the Jews normally would offer the daily evening sacrifice. And this is when Jesus dies. In verse 34, we read of only one of the seven sayings given in scripture, but Mark only uh, from Christ, but Mark only records this one. Where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in desperation, calls out, My God, my God, echoing 
the opening words of Psalms 22. For it is at this time that Jesus endures God's wrath as he bears the curse of our sins. You see, God cannot have intimacy with sin as written in Habakkuk where he writes, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The prophet Isaiah writes that your iniquities, speaking of Israel, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And as I read that verse, I once again like to read it, but I want you to put your name there. For those speaking to Israel, it's the state that each and every one will find us. As I read it again, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. You and I must realize that's the state of every human being that is born. Every precious little child is born with iniquities that make a natural, supernatural separation between God. And our sins have hidden His face from us so that He does not hear you. However, when we look at this, I want to be very careful. For this is not a break in the Trinity. The Trinity all of a sudden does not become the Trinity Jesus has put aside. But what Scripture, Mark, is telling us is that when Christ was forsaken by the Father, their separation was not one of nature or essence or substance. Christ did not in any sense or degree cease to exist as God. He is still God. He is still a member of the Trinity. He did not cease to be the Son any more than a child who sins severely against his human father ceases to be his child. But there is a loss of intimacy. But Jesus did for a while cease to know that intimacy of fellowship with his heavenly Father. As he walked this earth, as he did the miracles, he enjoyed the intimacy of the Father. He found his source of strength in the Father, his source of joy in the Father. But it's at this time, in his human ability, in his human side, he no longer had that strength. Still, Jesus, the Son of God in divinity, but no longer is his source and strength and found through a continually, continual relationship with the Father. Hebrews chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to turn there. For it's important for us to understand what's happening here in this passage. Jesus is quoting from Psalms 22. A psalm of David. Though we hear those words, we think of that psalm many times as, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that is not a cry. It's a cry of lament. I guess that's, a, that's redundant. It's a lament. It's a cry. But yet Psalms 22 is not just a full lament, but it's a psalm of triumph. In Hebrews chapter 5, look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. So in his earthly obedience, he had the intimacy of the Father. But at this moment, that intimacy was severed. John MacArthur writes, The Father forsook the Son because the Son took upon himself at that time our transgressions, our iniquities. That he, Jesus was delivered up 
because of our transgressions and that He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that He became a curse for us and that He bore our sins in His body on the cross. And He died the just for the unjust and became the propitiation for our sin. But as Jesus cries out, as we continue in that passage, we see that his cry does not elicit any sympathy with those nearby. He still continues in his humiliation. When he says, some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge and filled it with wine and put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink. Again, not a, not a, a sign of, of sympathy or empathy, but again, a taunt. You see, Messiah and Elijah were closely connected in the Old Testament. Since Jesus claimed to be, to be Messiah, they took this as a reference for Elijah to come rescue him. See, Elijah was the prophet in the Jewish tradition who came to help those in need so if you were a Jew, you would, you would cry out, Elijah, save me. Elijah, help me. This is similar to the Catholics who would look to St. Jude as the patron saint of lost causes. So as he's crying out, they take his words, either they mishear him or to see if he would be saved. Let's see if Elijah's going to come. It was not out of sympathy or respite, but to keep Jesus from dying too quickly. They wanted to say, wait, don't let him die. Let's give him something to drink. Let's extend his suffering. Why? So me may see if Elijah may come, if he is the Messiah. They intend to extend his suffering for their amusement and curiosity. Even on the cross, even as he's crying out, even in the darkness, the middle day, People are still looking to taunt him and to ridicule him. But in verse 37, triumph starts to arise as Jesus willingly gives up his spirit. Matthew and the others give a little bit more of account. Again, Mark is always more concise. In 37, Mark records, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. After six hours of torture on the cross, Jesus finally dies. Now it's important for us to mark that it usually took a long time to die on the cross. We had shared last week a little of the medical or the physical things that were going on with someone who was a cross. You died of suffocation. You would die because you were so exhausted you could no longer push yourself up and down. In Mark chapter 15, as we'll see next week, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus would have already died. This is though not the cry of an executed man when he says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. You're going to see why it's so uh, significant. It's not the cry of an executed man. It's not one who's saying, oh, the Greek verb there means a loud cry. It means a, a shout. Usually the crucified would have no breath to spare to cry out loudly. If anything, they would die gasping for breath. But here we see Mark is trying to let us know that this is not a, a death that is by man's hand, but a Jesus willingly giving up his life. 
This was not a gasping man's last breath, but it was a shout of victory. The Apostle John records that Jesus shouted, It is finished. I don't know why Mark did not include this. Again, Mark writes different people. But yet we see that this is not a shout or the last gasping breath or whimpering cry of a dead man. But I want us to consider just for a moment that one sentence. Because again, we'll read it quickly. May I read it? Read it with me. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Once again, the Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Think about that for a moment. The one who healed the blind died. The one who cast out demons died. The one who calmed the seas died. The one who walked on water died. The one who made the lame walk and the deaf to hear died. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead died. Let me tell you, Jesus, the Son of God, what? Died. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Unless we think it's because of Pilate, the Roman soldiers, and the envy of the religious leaders, they were all tools and means in which God crushed his own son. His own son did not do it unwillingly, but willingly. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man had come not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Christmas is just the beginning, the incarnation. As powerful as a doctrine that is, and I agree with what you said earlier, we do not consider the incarnation as strongly as we should. Jesus was born to die. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. When you read this line in Mark and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, do not think of defeat, but think of triumph. This is a shout of victory. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. But then we move to the next supernatural event. As Jesus dies, it tells us in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, uh, we read earlier the scripture about in Hebrews about the temple, and, and you kind of got that visual, hopefully word picture of what it may be. A large curtain that separates the regular holy place to the most holy place. Only the high priest could go in there. Only once a year. Only if he had given sacrifices for his own sin. All the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this event. That curtain, again, it separated what we call the holy of holies from the holy place. The curtain was 82 feet 
high. This was no man who went there and cut this. This was a heavy curtain. This was the first step in nullifying the temple worship. As we have read earlier, the temple will be soon be destroyed. In 70 AD, the temple will be torn down and no longer any worship being done. With the death of Jesus, the temple and the sacrifices of the temple are no longer necessary. You see, there's an impact when Jesus uttered his last breath. In other words, Jesus' death did what the sacrifice of bulls, the blood of bulls and others could not do. We see in 1 John, it says that Jesus appeared to take away sins. The impact was that it took away, it blotted out our sin. That could not be done through the temple sacrifice. They had to do it day by day, year by year at the Day of Atonement. It also defeated the powers of both evil and death as the reason, John tells us, that the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You could go to the temple, you could give your your worship, you could do your sacrifice, you could give your, your offerings, but as you walked out, you were as just much a sinner and as enslaved to sin as when you went out. It did no internal change. Lastly, the impact of Jesus' death was much more than the temple because it opened access to God. As we read earlier, only the high priest could go into the most holy of holies, the most holy place, and even once a year. Others could could attain this part, and and others could attain, uh, attain this. If you're a woman, you could only go so far in the temple. And then if you were a Gentile, but the impact of Jesus' death is that the temple is no longer because it gives confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. You could not do that in the temple. You would walk out truly the same man as you walked in. But now he says the impact of Jesus' death is that the temple is no longer needed. That curtain is no longer needed. You and I have something much greater than the temple. Jesus himself said, standing before the religious leaders, he said, something greater than the temple is standing before you. And they had no clue. Those who heard the words were the ones out of envy that said, crucify him. Yet the death of Christ made a great impact, which leads us then to the testimony of the Roman guard in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood face him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Truly this man was the Son of God. It was not a disciple, it was not a religious leader or a Jew, but as a Roman soldier who recognized that Jesus was more than just a failed rebel leader. His declaration now, be careful, is not a theological statement of belief. It's not a sign of a regenerated heart. Mark doesn't give us that detail. But it's the exclamation, I want you to get this, of a man whose heart is hardened and body is hardened and mind is hardened by battle, who is just witness of very different death than he has ever 
witnessed before. He had most likely attended many crucifixions. But this one, this man, this Jesus was very different. Luke writes that when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Truly, he was the son of God. My prayer is one day we may stand in heaven, we may see that man. I think that man right there would give us some details that we would just be horrified at. But I pray that God regenerated his heart. We do not know. But let me ask you, who do you say Jesus is? When you see Jesus, do do you say Jesus is the Son of God? He is Lord. He is King. Who do you say Jesus is? But on this cross, Jesus understands now the shame of sin. He understands the pain that sin brings. He understands the desperation that sin brings. He understands being forsaken because of sin, losing the intimacy, the source of power, the source of joy. Why does Jesus go through this as we come now to the end of Jesus dies? As this brings the doctrine of what we call the atonement. If you're taking notes, I'll give you Wayne Grubman writes that the atonement is the work of Christ. It's the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. When we're reading here in Mark, we're just not reading a a portion of history. We're just not reading what happened to Jesus. It's not just an event, but it's an event that actually does and accomplishes something for you and I here today. We call it the atonement. Why did Jesus come to die? Well, the Apostle Paul or Apostle John writes that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. but have eternal life. And as we come near, I want to tell, share with you that Jesus accomplishes this eternal life in two ways. Through, our active, through His active obedience and through His passive obedience. And let me share number one, because this is important for us to understand. Is that Christ's passive obedience grants you and I forgiveness of sin. His passive obedience grants us forgiveness of sin. Now, his passive obedience is what you and I have been studying over the last few weeks in Mark 14 and 15. You see, Jesus took upon himself the suffering of taking on flesh, the incarnation. He became a man. He became a human. And think of this. He allowed himself to be tempted by Satan, that creature who rebelled against the holy God. Hebrew tells us that although he was son, he learned obedience through those things that he suffered. Just imagine this, the holy, the omnipotent, the all-knowing God allowing himself to receive such treatment from his creation, from the creature. Not only the temptation from Satan, but also the mockings, the beatings, the ridicule, the humiliation from those that he breathed life into. He experienced the pain of loss through the death of his friend. Jesus wept. He experienced the not fun stuff of human life, walking, talking, all that comes with being human. 
physical pain and the pain of an innocent, perfect being bearing the sins of others. Isaiah tells us that the Lord has put on him the iniquity of us all and that he bore the sins of many, not just the sins of himself, but the sins of all those that God will draw to him. John the Baptist declared once that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who passively stood and allowed himself to receive such humiliation. He suffered abandonment from his disciples and the intimacy of the Father. And if that was not enough, he bore the full weight of the wrath of God. Wayne Grumman writes that as Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. God did not stay his hand because it was Jesus' flesh that he saw. He said, give out the lashes. Jesus did not drink a thimble cup. He drank it full, brimming to the top, pouring it back and back, and he drank it all in. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin that God has for it. And the vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. He paid the debt we owed. The Bible tells us that the wages of our sin, the consequences of our actions, is death. And Jesus became our substitute. In his suffering, he not only paid our sin, but he earned God's favor towards us. That's so important. In Christ's passive obedience, he grants us forgiveness of sin. But let me share with you, you've heard me say this before. Forgiveness alone does not merit reconciliation with God. You and I know this. If someone does something bad against you, they steal from you, they do something wrong against you, you may forgive them, but it changes that relationship, does it not? When you think of them, if someone you loaned money did not pay you back, if they came back, you would probably say what? No. So forgiveness of sin only takes away the wrath of God. It still does not get us into heaven. It still does not enable us to have a relationship in heaven. So not only does his passive obedience grant us forgiveness of sin, but we see that Christ's active obedience earns our righteousness, our right standing before God. You see, we needed to be righteous, yet we cannot. We are unable to earn any of our own good. The Bible informs us that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. So Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn righteousness for us. He had to obey the law for his whole life on our behalf so that the positive merits of his perfect obedience would be counted for us. He truly was the innocent one. Truly the perfect who obeyed the law in all of its jots and tittles. Paul tells us in Philippians, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 
Paul would write to the Roman church that Mark is also writing to, saying, as one trespass led condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteousness. That's what we're singing in Jesus Messiah. Let me give it to you in a nutshell. Could you imagine that you may sin three times a day? Would you grant that you at least sin three times a day? Okay, just minimum. There's a few of you that might just be pushing 2.75. Just imagine just three sins a day. For a whole year. There's a thousand. Let's round up. Now, could you imagine the life, the Bible says a man is 70 years. We know it's really longer, but could you imagine 70 years times a thousand? So if you were to stand before a judge with 70,000 infractions, how would you think you would deal in a courtroom of God's justice? We're guilty. And we know that scenario is not true. Our, our sins are so unnumberable. Innumerable? What's the right word? Hey, it's a lot. That's the Greek word, I think, right? A lot. So imagine, this is what's happening. Jesus is on that cross. And what God does, he takes, and I'm just, just for the sake of the illustration, he takes every one of us, every one of you I know, have made a profession of faith. He takes all 70,000s of our sin. And he places it on an innocent one. And so when he sees Jesus, he doesn't hold back. His intense hatred of sin, his vengeance, his wrath is being poured out. Now, now multiply that between all those who he came to save. That's called imputed sin. He takes our sin and places it on the one who did no sin. Now, if that's not enough, he takes the very thing that made Jesus perfect, his obedience, and he gives us his sin, and he says, you know what? I'll exchange it. For your sin, I'll take Jesus' righteousness, his perfect obedience, and I'll put it on you. And this is why it's so important. We are not made right before God. We are declared right before God. There is a difference. And so what he does, he says, now I no longer look at you as someone who is deserving punishment, but I see you as my son, the one who made perfect. And the wrath of God is satisfied. Did we not sing that? And the wrath of, that's my favorite part of that song. And the wrath of God was satisfied. No one here should be frowning at all. The biggest thing, the biggest burden that you have in your life has been satisfied in the sufferings and the act of obedience and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. A great exchange it's called. Jesus gets my sin and I get his righteousness. That's not a fair trade in any culture in any world, but yet, what he did for us. It is not a fairy tale. It has been done. It is real. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, he tells us we might become the righteousness of God. You and I needed both forgiveness of sin and favor of God. Amen? 
Joel Thorne in his book, Note to Self, writes, At its core, this is the gospel. It is Jesus is the substitute for sinners. Do not think of this as cosmic child abuse, as some might say. This is truly what was needed. He's a substitute. We could summarize the whole of the gospel by saying that in his life, Jesus lives in perfect submission to the will of God, doing what you and I could not do. You must be perfect in Matthew 5. You must be perfect even as the Father is perfect. He fulfills his righteous standard. In his death on the cross, he quenches God's wrath against sin, satisfying the sovereign's demand for justice. In his resurrection that we'll see next week, he is victorious over sin and death. And all of this is done on the behalf of sinners in need of redemption and offered to all who believe. Hence why we call it good news. Jesus' life is good news for his obedience to the Father and fulfillment of the law is for us. While we are sinners fail to keep the law, Jesus was perfectly faithful. Jesus' death is good news because his death was a payment for our sin. And by it, you and I are cleansed from our guilt and released from condemnation. Jesus' resurrection is good news because his victory over death is ours. My friends, when you read in Mark 15, and Jesus breathed his last and died, that is a triumphal cry. That is a triumphal breath. Just as God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and made him come alive, Jesus breathed and breathed into us the Holy Spirit a new life. Take your Bibles if you would and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and with these have a close. That all of this comes not because we deserved to have Jesus envelop us and take the beating. It did not become because we deserved it. It did not become because of our relationship. It comes as a gift. This famous passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 8. Paul tells us that it was by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Jesus did the work. And I'd like to plant here, because of that, you and I are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When Jesus breathed and cried out, it was not in vain, but it accomplishes something very real. Not only our righteousness and our forgiveness, but he gave us a new life to live. He began and said, you are my workmanship, and now you have something to do. The cross then means you and I need to live differently today. We need to accept by faith that God has made us new through the cross and the suffering of Christ. Turn one last time, Galatians chapter 2, for this is where you need to get it. And this is where I want to end with the challenge. You see, he is our hope. His suffering is our salvation. But our life is now His. What He did on that cross has implications for you today as you walk out this room. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christ of suffering has a past work. He's given you forgiveness and a right standing with God. His suffering and and humiliation on the cross, his death this day has a present purpose. We've been delivered from the power of Satan. And we're now to live our lives for him. And it has a future, a hope, a confident expectation. Not a wishful thought, but a confident expectation that we will be united with him. All because he breathed his last, cried out, it is finished. With every head bowed and every eye closed. As the worship team makes their way up, I'd like to ask you this morning, what does that mean for you today? Have you trusted in faith that Jesus has accomplished what is necessary for you to have in order to be right with God? If not, would you do so today? We just turn and say, Father, I accept and trust in what Jesus did. And I understand that I'm a sinner, I'm deserving, but there's been a great exchange. My sin for his righteousness. Would you now help me to walk faithfully in the way Christ has walked? If you're here today and you've done that, is your life marked by the crucifixion? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Father, we ask for you to give us the strength to do both. If there's any here that do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would cry out, today is the day of salvation. Let them see their need for a savior, not a therapist, not a doctor, but one who comes and saves the soul. May they come to trust in you. Father, and for those that have accepted, for those who submit to the Lord's to what the Lord has done, I pray that they would begin to live that crucified life today. Not one of, of sorrow and frustration or desperation, but one of victory. May we shout with a loud cry that it is finished. I now live in Christ. I live with Him and for Him, ready to do the works. Father, enable us for such great things. In your name we pray. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith@orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.